Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. It is Monday, June the 5th. We have a live guest with us. I will be introducing him very shortly. I want to thank you all for joining me. I promised you a program talking about the religious nature of the political left and the fact that they were moving forward this cultural Marxism, this wokeism as a secular religion that is sort of the religion of the government. And uh, sort of in a fortuitous event, producer Phil, who's not with me today, I am flying solo, managed to uh, bring on a fantastic guest for us. We're going to introduce him just in a second here. If you've been watching on Twitter, you already know who I'm bringing on with the former Space Force commander. He was Lieutenant Colonel. His name is Matthew Lohmeyer. Um, but before we do that, let me just say a quick thank you to our sponsor, Catholic Vote. Folks, Catholic Vote is America's top Catholic advocacy organization. They are also in the fight for Christians across this country. You can join the Loopcast. You can just put in their email right there in your zip code. You will get access to all the information. They are fighting this bizarre world in the uh, where the Los Angeles Dodgers are putting a woke drag show on. They are suing the FBI, my former employer, for going after Catholics in the Richmond field office, and they are sponsoring our podcast. So feel free to check them out. If you are a Christian in this country that cares about faith, family, and freedom. They are a place for you. You don't have to be Catholic specifically. In fact, the word Catholic means universal. They are actually fighting for many of the things that all of us feel, whether you are a uh, confirmed Catholic or not. CatholicVote.org. Check them out there in the show notes. And um, let's let's bring on our fantastic guest. Let me just put up his uh, website right here. You can go to MatthewLohmeyer.com. You can see he's an author. He's a speaker. He's a defender of this country. He pledged his life, served in the United States Air Force and transitioned over into the Space Force. I'm going to bring up his book real quick. You can check this out. Uh, it is on Amazon. It's a very easy purchase at under $8. It's sitting in my cart right now. And uh, let's bring the man on himself. There he is. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for joining me this morning. I'm very appreciative that you made time for us today. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your story, as are so many others here. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. Happy to share my time with you this morning. So, you went to the Air Force Academy in 2006. I imagine you thought you were going to be retiring from the United States Air Force. You ended up in the Space Force. Why don't you tell people a little bit about where you grew up, kind of how you ended up? You mentioned a kind of reluctant path to patriotism or a slow growth mm -hmm. in your path to patriotism. I think many of us can kind of empathize with that because it wasn't first and foremost um, when you when you were growing up, most likely. Yeah. In fact, uh, I had great parents, but uh you know, I've recognized as I've gotten older, my dad was right about a lot of things politically and otherwise, but I didn't pay that much attention in high school. I was busy playing basketball and, uh, uh, yeah, I grew up in Tucson. I was born and raised there and then went to the Air Force Academy after high school. Um, when I went to, uh, the Academy, um, I wasn't, uh, certainly wasn't an extremist patriot as, uh, we're wont to be labeled today, uh, a patriot extremist, constitutional extremist recovering FBI agent. Um, I was uh, not appreciative enough of the greatness of the American ideal. And I think it took a little bit of education before I appreciated just how great the country is that we live in. You're learning about other countries, learning about the problems others have had, especially in the last century alone with Marxist revolutions, which came much later in my life. But it was while I was at the Air Force Academy and I graduated in 2006 
that I got a backseat ride in a T-38. It's the fighter trainer. I did that over uh, a vast stretch of desert outside of Lancaster, California, where Edwards Air Force Base is, uh, China Lake. And uh, I realized I think I want to fly fighters for the Air Force. And um, it was probably about that time, you know, just after starting there at the Air Force Academy that I started to take my studies a little bit more seriously for the first time in my life. And it was at the same time, incidentally, that I started to love my country. You have to study something and learn something if you want to love your country. And um, yeah, I left in 2006, went off to pilot training, and that's where our big journey begins. But um, I was in for 15 and a half years before uh, separating without my pension in the fall of 2021. Now, a lot of people go to the Air Force, they go to the Air Force Academy, or they go to the Naval Academy, and they dream, you know, from the time they were a little kid of being a pilot. It doesn't sound like that was your dream, that you got actually, you, you kind of found that dream. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, when you go to a school like that, um, you're necessarily embedded with a bunch of people, like you said, who have been dreaming about this for a long time. A lot of the time, that's because they've got parents or grandparents who served in the military. Maybe they were academy graduates themselves. And... Um, they have that dream their entire lives. That wasn't me. I wanted to play basketball, um, was worried about my chances of getting into the NBA because I was at the uh, lowly Air Force Academy whose basketball program wasn't exactly stellar. Um, but um, yeah, it, it took it took some time. And um, as I discussed, you were referencing a movie trailer that I can't yet show publicly, but um, I mentioned in this movie trailer, and maybe we'll talk about it later on in the show, that I had gradually come into my patriotism. My wife was, in fact, a better patriot than I was. I was just the military officer. And uh, took uh, flying jets for a while, traveling around the world. Um, and, um, you know, probably maybe even surpassed some of my fellow pilots and their patriotism after a short season because um, you get thinking about things. And you see what's happening all around us in the country, as you have and many others do. Uh, you recognize that um, the sacrifice, courage, blood, and sweat that uh, secured freedom for us over the past few generations um, is required in every generation, in fact. Uh, and the oath that we take uh, is to secure or defend the Constitution against its enemies, both foreign and domestic. And you start thinking about the foreign adversaries piece in the U.S. military, of course, far before you ever start thinking about the idea of domestic enemies. Uh, in fact, if we get into it, it's almost like you're not allowed to think that there are domestic enemies to the Constitution and anymore with the current party line. If there are domestic enemies, there's something, uh, you know, we've we've racially polarized, stratified uh, people these days. They look like you and me. They're probably conservative. They're probably straight and have families. Um, and uh, there's something like an alt-right fascistic radical. And there's to say nothing of the totalitarian leftism that's sweeping across our country. Um, but yeah, yeah, it took, it took a little while for me to become um, truly in love with the idea of uh, what America stands for and, and has aspired to its entire existence. You, you brought up the oath, and, uh, and there's obviously multiple dimensions of it, but one of the pieces that we all sort of take on is that uh, you pledge your life to it, and that it sounds like you saw the same thing that I saw, which is to say, 
Um, people pledged their life, and we kind of do that casually and wantonly. We don't really think about what that means. But these people that are willing to, quote unquote, pledge their life to it and theoretically are willing to die for this country are not even willing to to stand up and lose a paycheck or a pension or the prestige of their job. And uh, you obviously did that sort of thing. Did you see the same attitudes um, maybe behind the scenes uh, that just wasn't being verbalized, that you had the same concerns with those out there? Yes, but um, it takes people a little while to wake up. Um, you know, there was this video I just saw probably two weeks ago. Uh, you may have seen it. It was viral on Twitter for a little while. This uh, person going around with what I presume is an iPhone camera interviewing a bunch of Marines in the barracks, asking them why they joined the service. And... Um, all you hear is a bunch of vulgarity and, you know, get that camera out of my face. And, um, I wanted a free education. Um, you get the sense that there are, there, there's no appreciation for what it is that they've actually signed up to do. Now, having said that, unfortunately that's becoming all the more common throughout all branches of the military. And that's a product of uh, broader American society and the way we're raising children and the public education system and a lot of things. But, I'm always talking about, you know, these negative things, and I, I should be quick to say up front for the listener, uh, we've got tremendous men and women in uniform who both do have courage and are somewhat awake to the problems that we're experiencing. Uh, when you join the military, however, I presume it's the same way in a lot of federal agencies, um, but especially in the military, you're trained to be rather apolitical and to leave that baggage at the door. Uh, you get the same ugly haircut, you, you don the same uniform, you bleed the same color, and then you have a kind of fellowship or a brotherhood or a sisterhood within the ranks. And it didn't matter if you were a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or apolitical. It didn't matter if you were, frankly, Christian or atheist, because when you came into the service, there's some mission that you're doing in defense of the country. And everyone checks that baggage at the door and 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 saddles up next to each other in order to accomplish a mission. And the moment you start to say that all of those intersectionalities matter, those uh, those intersections of identity matter, the accidentals, as it were, then everyone becomes as divided as the rest of the American people who are having religious and political partisan uh, debates. And... Um, when the leftist narrative of affairs in the country becomes the primary talking point for a a military apparatus in a military workplace, let's say, here's the unfortunate reality that your listener needs to appreciate, is that most people in uniform, even if they're courageous, even if they share your values, they've been trained, as I mentioned, to stay out of that stuff. They've been trained to keep their mouth shut and to not be contentious and to not be divisive. And... Um, and to only discuss those kinds of things privately and out, out of the uniform. And and so the activist has a new platform that they can use to um, completely, radically, in fact, uh, attempt to alter the culture of the military workplace. And a bunch of decent people are left speechless and wondering if they should speak up for fear of getting in trouble, breaking any legal obligations or ethical obligations they've got under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And so really it takes sometimes seeing a few other people standing up and speaking up before someone who's been trained to and conditioned to behave in that way is willing to actually say, you know what, it's okay to take a principled stand uh, for my country of all things in uniform, uh, for the flag, for the constitution, uh, 
uh, for some American ideal and to say what I'm hearing come out of these training sessions, diversity and inclusion trainings, what I'm hearing come out of the leftist mouth, that is not welcome in the workplace. In this uniform, whatever your politics are, we need to be standing up for America. We need to be standing up for the American ideal. And uh, there is, in fact, a viewpoint that is antithetical to the American viewpoint. And we should consider that a kind of domestic threat. And uh, we've never been trained to think that way in the military, unfortunately. And uh, all anymore, it's all too common to hear the anti-American talking point, even in uniform, from senior leaders, in fact. We've got a guy that was just uh, nominated by Joe Biden to be the uh, next chairman of the Joint Chiefs to replace um, General Mark Milley. You know, the guy that wants to understand his own white rage that right. you've heard about in the last couple of uh, year and a half. Uh, General C.Q. Brown is currently the Air Force chief of staff, and he's the nominee to take Milley's spot. He's no better than Milley. In fact, he has, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, uh, incited the distrust and uh, a kind of division in the military workplace because of how political he became about race issues. Uh, you can't do that kind of stuff as a leader in the military because everyone else who serves beneath you has been trained to not to knock that kind of nonsense off. And they watch that happen and instantly you've got to divide. There's some small minority of the people that love it. And most of the people are just turned off by it because they know it has no place in the military workplace. So, yeah, we've um, we do have a lot of good men and women. I know that there were other commanders and there still are. I hear from them who share with me a concern for th the way things are headed and very few speak up. And when they do, you hear about them in the headlines for a day and then they, they go the way of all the earth because they're going to be kicked to the curb. They're not going to have a platform like you and they'll take their courage out into the civilian workplace. You'll never hear about them again. That's the sad reality. It's it's really sad. And, uh, and unfortunately, I think that is the case. They are purging the ranks of types of people that have integrity and honesty and that signed up with a clear heart and purpose. Uh, you signed up under George W. Bush as you went to the academy. Um, I enlisted under Obama. It didn't make a difference. Were you particularly political as a, as a young person? Was that something that was in your mind at all, or was it no. all about basketball? No. In fact, I don't remember when the first time I voted in my life was, but it was long after I was legally able to vote. I just, this this will sound bad, and I'm actually embarrassed to say it. I just didn't care. I just figured that whole apparatus works fine without my input, and that's not the right way Americans should view things. But I, I just didn't care, and it was um, probably... It was probably the 2016 election cycle when when you had uh, Clinton and Trump uh, that I actually started to pay attention, watch debates and see who is going to become president, have opinions about things. I mean, that's late in the game. I was I was a senior captain about to pin on major or just maybe become a major in the Air Force. And um it tells you something. I mean, it's like I wasn't atypical. Now, there were others that were maybe more politically awake or socially aware, maybe not so more politically awake than I was in the military at that at that stage in the game. But most of the people, by the way, at that stage that you are you are a higher ranking person when you're a major than most other people uh, in the military. That's the, how the numbers work. And uh, if you've been in for over 10 years, you're, you become one of the senior ranking officers, even though you're lowly compared to the general officer ranks and whatnot. So think think about that. Does your 20-year-old and your 21-year-old and your 22-year-old, are they thinking carefully about politics and the social dynamics uh, in the country? Or are they just simply parroting what they see on Twitter and TikTok and uh, Instagram? And so the kind of 
socio-political mores that you see throughout broader American society is probably typical of the kind of views that we inherit in the military uh, workplace as well. I mean, there, there, there's no special waking up that happens for the man or woman that joins um, their military for the first couple of years. That takes their own personal effort. Uh, you'd think that you'd get trainings in the military that would kind of... Um, I don't want to use the term indoctrinate because that's negative, but like would indoctrinate you, they would educate you into the kind of patriotic fervor that is required for an all-volunteer force in the military. And yet we get exactly the opposite anymore. It's um, about the evils of the beginnings of America. Uh, that doesn't engender any kind of um, desire in the hearts and minds of these men and women to con to either continue serving in the military if they're already in or to be recruited to serve in the military if they haven't yet signed up. And that's why we have, um, you know, it's that and this religion of wokeism that you mentioned in your introduction. It's really turning people away. Uh, it's, uh, it's hurting our recruitment and retention numbers. There, there used to be a, an instinct that people needed an esprit de corps in order to go downrange and do, you know, the dirty work for America to, to do the thing overseas that we were trying to keep from coming onto our shores. Uh, you're getting a lot of kind of um, agreement in our live chat right now. We've got some veterans in there that have the same thing. Didn't care about politics, didn't join for politics, wasn't about politics, uh, came to sign up because they believed in what the country was about, at least in a, right. in a conceptual framework, and they just wanted to go and, and do its work and uh, and be the person that stood in the gap. I think that's very common. Uh, I, I, I share that. You and I are only a couple years apart and I have mm -hmm. kind of the same instinct. I don't remember caring about politics. 2016, I remember watching debates and thinking, like, was I missing all this stuff before? Right. Um, it just it just really wasn't relevant until suddenly it got very real. But another group of people in this country clearly did know that it was important, and they were obviously pushing this. When do you think you first started noticing that creeping wokeism, neo-Marxist-type um, indoctrinations? When did you start seeing the first inklings of that come in through the command structure? Well— it took me, okay, so I want to, I want to put it this way. Uh, this stuff doesn't happen overnight, although to the observer, it can appear that it happened quite radically and quite dramatically, right? So the seeds have been planted a long time. I don't think that the soil of American society was, was properly outfitted to allow the seeds to germinate and begin to sprout and grow into a Marxist revolution. But like the seeds were there for decades and decades. In fact, Upwards of, uh, you know, at least the better part of a half century, we've we've seen um, a kind of radical Marxist activism, particularly in the in, in academia, um, and, and it just didn't typify the military workplace. Um, but more and more, we've uh, prided ourselves in getting our senior military officers, especially any more as well, the senior enlisted ranks. Um, a respectable civilian education in institutes of higher learning where Marxism abounds and leftist thinking abounds. And uh, we've kind of transformed even our military service academies uh, since the Clinton era to uh, hire more and more civilian uh, hires at our service academies rather than having uniformed instructors who had actual experience on the battlefield, for example. We had, we had all these civilian hires come in. Of course, where do you hire them from? Well, you want to maintain the prestige and the respect of these institutions. And so you hire the best of the best, so you think, from uh, from outstanding colleges and universities. And they tended to be um, 
Not, it's not entirely true early on, but they tend to be leftist in their worldview. And so this kind of thing is planting the seeds all along. But I'll tell you the answer to the question, when did I notice it? I didn't notice it at all in my military career until George Floyd's death. That's very recently. Yep. And what's amazing about it is like I had already become politically aware, but the military workplace was not typified by politics or sexuality until George Floyd is in the news and you saw the BLM riots and the Antifa uh, uh, protests and riots where they're smashing windows on buildings, they're stomping on police cars, and you see cities on fire, and you see on social media there are left-wing activists who are who are advocating the burning down of society. And all of a sudden, for the first time, and maybe it's just me, but I saw a dramatic shift in the spirit of the military workplace where you had young men and women in uniform retweeting that stuff, sharing those posts on their social media platforms. I brought it up to my chain of command. I said, hey, we've got some political activists in uniform who are advocating that we burn Atlanta to the ground, but they're active duty service members. That's a UCMJ punishable offense. And here's what we had done to ourselves. We had begun for the year leading up to that point to talk about race so much and systemic racism that if any of the um, political activists had some kind of a protected status, and I mean if they're LGBTQ community, if they're black or people of color, all of these terms that, you know, in the last few years we've started paying attention to, all of a sudden the white senior leader, by and large, was unwilling to hold the minority group accountable for illegal, unethical, or immoral conduct. It was a really terrible place. I'm just going to say it how it is. That's that's the truth of the matter. I had, I had a number of conversations with senior military leaders discussing radical political activism in the military workplace, and they were utterly afraid to try and hold them accountable for fear that there would be allegations of racism brought against them. And uh, if you've if you've lost your ability to hold your man and woman in uniform to us to an equal, a real equal standard of justice and um, accountability, you don't have any justice and accountability anymore. There's at least a two tiered, if not altogether demolished uh, accountability system. And it wrecks morale. It wrecks esprit de corps. Um, and uh, so a lot of a lot of the problems we're seeing today is directly the result of the rhetoric that we've used, creating a climate of fear, and it's it's disabled people from acting the role that they should as a neutral or rather a political um, commander and leader and uh, someone who adjudicates uh, these illegal and unethical um, activities. Um, just one more thought on this, uh, you know. I'd, I'm well aware of the fact that you give me the latitude and I'll speak for a long time. <laughs> um, here, just one more thought. You know, I wrote this book, Irresistible Revolution, uh, which is really good, by the way. And frankly, I'm not interested in wasting people's time with bad literature. And my, my book is really good. Um, I, I have a section in that book that's probably a 30 or 40 pages, maybe, of examples I don't mention names. I do mention rank of examples of active duty military service members who are saying illegal and unethical things on their social media platforms to give an example to the reader of the kind of stuff that had just cropped up really quickly in the military. There was an active duty lieutenant colonel who identified on his Facebook page as both uh, black and gay. 
he was on his way into command at the same time I was going into command. And uh, he was constantly publicly criticizing the Trump administration for their policies. Uh, he, he, too, was talking about burning down society. Uh, and I, I mentioned that in my book, brought it up to senior leaders and said, are you interested in the identity of this commander who's a political activist in uniform? And total uh, unwillingness to be apprised of the information that they need to hold that guy accountable because they're afraid. They're afraid to find out the details because then they're kind of compelled to hold him accountable. And so they refuse to know. So I get fired from command for writing a book about political activism in the military, and I'm fired for alleged political partisanship, mind you, while there are real political activists afoot who were not allowed to hold accountable for their political activism because of some protected status. Uh, that, that's just a, that, that, that flies in the face of everything this country is supposed to be. And um, and so it's a great way to wreck a military. It's a great way to wreck a country. Many uh, Marxist revolutionaries for the past half century have known that. They're happy to inject the kind of divisive rhetoric into society that will get people to hate one another, to to establish a, um, a kind of two-tiered justice system and an inequality. It's a, it's a state-enforced inequality is what it is. And it gets people really angry. And they do the unthinkable things, which furthers, furthers the Marxist revolution. It's really a brilliant strategy, in fact. Uh, but to this day, no senior leader has ever asked me the identity of that lieutenant colonel. Um, and even offering the education, uh, the, the information while I was in uniform uh, was such a, a frightful thing to senior leaders. They were only interested in keeping me quiet and getting me out of the way rather than holding people accountable. So that... That is the state of affairs in reality of our senior, of our senior military leadership. And that is propped up and supported by the current administration's policy and weak or fickle uh, senior military leaders who are who are political appointments, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and General Mark Milley. They will do the bidding of their masters. And it's too bad their masters happen to be a puppet. And um, so we're in a really bad spot. All that needs to change. People in the ranks need to do some things about it, which we can talk about. But senior military leadership and the administration, that all needs to change as well because policy needs to change. And we, ac we actually have to restore respect for law and the Constitution if we're to fix any of these problems. Uh, otherwise, we'll just keep purging people that speak up about it. The chat's telling uh, you that they've got all day. They're more than happy to hear your story. I know you don't okay, have all day, all right. but, uh, but I'm going to give you as much. Like I said, I will give you as much long form as you like. Um, there's two things that I wanted to, to hone in on there. You and I have never met. I actually just became your, aware of your story. Unfortunately, the news cycle is so wild. I, I briefly remember hearing about a Space Force commander being removed, but there's so much going out there. I hear about this the other day, and you're using the exact same words that I do, illegal, hmm. immoral, and unethical. These are the things that are that are laws that you that are orders that you must refuse when you're in either federal right. service or you're in the military. You are required to do so. And you have to be an objector to these things, and people are not. And the second thing that I find very interesting is you've pinned it to the death of George Floyd. And mm -hmm. that happened in 2020, and that is a very specific time. But what was also happening right then was a, a significant lockdown of private society by this COVID right. virus that came through. And I've made the argument, and I'm curious to see if you think the same, that much like you were not aware of it until that time, I think a lot of American society did not see this creeping cultural Marxism, this corporate Marxism that's come in and invaded a lot of different spaces, including the military and, and, and public service. But they, they saw that opportunity with COVID, with George Floyd, and they jumped the goalpost while we were watching. They moved it back 
20 or 30 yards. They did 10 years worth of movement in a few months. And it was the only way that it was going to become really visible because otherwise they're so incremental and they've been so patient about it for a long, long time that that's that people like you, people like I that didn't really care otherwise suddenly got involved in it and went like, okay, uh, something's happening here. I see it. And now they're lying about it to my face. Mm. And you you mentioned that that there was a uh, an inability to hold people accountable in your ranks because of that protected class. That obviously wasn't just the military. You obviously know that happened in other places, including civil right. service. Um, but the fact that it was in the military, where you do have such a rigid, specialized set of laws, the UCMJ, it governs, like, that's supposed to be the great equalizer. That's why people went to the military. They felt equal for many generations, where there may have been racism back home in Alabama or Mississippi, or they came from Florida, but you put on your your uh, your uniform, and everybody gets treated according to their rank and according to their ability. At least, that's the hope. That's, right. what, I, that's what I thought I was joining. And it sounds like you had that same ideal. You grew to that ideal. Uh, you mentioned that your book is very studious. Uh, I know that you have advanced degrees. You have two different master's degrees. Um, you've spent time in academia. How did you resist sort of, you know, did, was it in the academic environments that you were in? Did you see it then and start recognizing it? Or was it something that it really took until 2020 to get to you? Okay, I'm gonna, you've said a couple of things I want to revisit. Uh, I'll come back to this uh, recognition of and maybe resistance to the Marxist spiritual impulse um, that is in academia and that I encounter while I was getting uh, especially the second of those two master's degrees that you mentioned at a, at a DOD strategy school. But I want to go back to uh, clarify just one thing. Yeah, while it was George Floyd's death and the news and the rioting that that surrounded all of that, that was a specific time period that I was able to pinpoint and say, I recognized a clear shift at that time. That is true. And, and yet the reason I was able to recognize that moment as a dramatic shift in society. Now, a lot of people saw the news and thought, oh, this is just, you know, this will come and go. Uh, and uh, fortunately, those riots largely left, although that spiritual impulse remains. Um, <clears throat> is because for years leading up to that moment, I had studied uh, Marxist ideology, the um, Communist Manifesto, and seen and even written about in one of those prior programs that you've mentioned, uh, the characteristics of the Marxist revolution. Because I had looked at those things carefully, studied them, thought about them, you think about that stuff long enough, and when it when it crops up in your neck of the woods, you smell it instantly, you recognize it instantly, and everything that we saw happening that you just talked about after George Floyd's death was playbook Marxist revolution. I mean, it looked like 1960s, early 70s, Mao's cultural revolution. If you look at, um, there's a book by a He's a professor at a small school in Minnesota, I think. He probably still is. His name is Fan Shun. And he wrote a book years ago about Mao's cultural revolution. It's called the, um, it's called something, I can't remember, but uh, I quote it in my book. That's fair. <laughs> uh, it'll pop up he, in the live chat, he's too. A, yeah, it'll come up. Um, man, I can picture the cover, black and white cover. Anyway, he's a little boy in the, in the, in the picture on the cover. And he lived through Mao's... Um, cultural revolution. And he writes this book either in 2004 or 2014. And that's irrelevant because it was years before what we saw happening in 2020. And you would have thought he was watching the events in 2020 
and writing a book pretending that that's exactly what happened in Mao's Cultural Revolution, when in fact he wrote the book before 2020. And everything he writes in the book, arm, uh, no, something of one, Gang of One. It's called the Gang of One by Fan Shun. You read that, his lived experience in Mao's Cultural Revolution, and you swear you're reading about America 2020. It's unbelievable that the fist raising, the banners, the slogans, the, cause, the, the forcing people to kneel and apologize for the privilege, everything to a T. Uh, is the spirit of Marxism. And the tactics are the same, and the strategy is the same, because the religion is the same. And uh, you went so far as to call it a secular religion. I think that's true. I've called it an anti-God, anti-Western, anti-capitalist, anti... It's it's an anti-God spiritual revolution. And it should be properly viewed as a kind of uh, a religious revolution, because... It teaches people who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, who's good and evil, what is good and evil. It teaches you that if there's some things you can fix and repent of uh, in order to gain salvation. And by the way, it has nothing to do with fixing what's in your heart. It has everything to do with what's wrong about you in society. So you can set about fixing everyone else and causing them. You can extract forced confessions of guilt for their sins and their microaggressions and their implicit biases. And if you can set out saving others, then you can set up the the utopian state here and now in this world and gain a kind of salvation, uh, kind of return to Eden. Uh, it's very religious. Yep. Um, and it's antithetical to everything about the Christian worldview, but it plays on the sympathies of the decent human because it invokes the vocabulary of decent human beings and, and a religious worldview. I mean, it talks about equality and justice and fairness and all those things that you and I think we really want, and uh, but it redefines terms and it abuses people and it bullies people. So I recognized it then at that point in history, George Floyd's death. But it was because of having kind of you know, taken a close look at those things in the lead up to that moment. And I had a base commander at my base at the time. I was in command of the nation's space base missile warning at Buckley Air Force Base for in the Space Force. And it was a commander of a unit there. But I had a base commander who was a political activist. And from the moment that COVID arose and George Floyd's death happened, he actually stepped aside from his base command. And I'm not exaggerating one, but he gave command of the base to his vice commander so that he could take on white supremacy and have race talks all the time, global climate change and uh, COVID. I mean, he said those are our biggest threats. And so his duty as the base commander, uh, was, was to fight those things, which meant he didn't have time to do his job as a base commander. And he had to give those responsibilities over to his less political, uh, vice base commander. And, um, that, that was a great sure way to rip apart a base. I mean, the base was, it felt like a communist compound. It was terrible. It's, it was absolutely that's, terrible. It's truly crazy. That I mean, that, that's the whole point of why it's people insane. get into that thing. They want authority. They want to be able to to be the person who. I mean, a lot of people used to run bases like their private fiefdom, and they would, you know, that's that's what they got off on. Not you know, not that it's good, right. but but there's a, an an ego driven piece of being a commander for certain people, certainly the wrong kind of people, I think, that go there to do that. And the idea that you'd step aside so you could become a full time activist or a, you know, I, I like to argue they're almost like a priest in this secular religion when they start right. administering it, because it does have a religious quality to it. Well, it has a religious quality. They act like a priest, and in fact, um, when able, bring chaplains alongside them to enforce their new agenda. And so at my base, the base commander worked hand-in-hand with the chaplaincy, who tried to embed themselves into the units 
uh, instead of, you know, they normally had offices over in the, uh, in the chapel and I had a chaplain come into my, I, I was brand new to command. I had a chaplain come into my operations squadron and explain that, uh, we've decided no longer will we work out of the chapel, but we're going to find offices in the operational units. And he wanted to give my troops something called race in America training sessions. And, um, now uh, this stuff never used to matter, but unfortunately it does now, so I mention all these details. Base commander was black, the chaplain was black, I was a white commander, and I was sensitive to the perception that pushing back on some of this stuff could be deemed uh, wrong, right? At least, at very least. And so I told the chaplain, and I described this encounter uh, without mentioning the name of the chaplain, but I, I described this encounter in my book. And he says, I'd like to have these race in America training sessions with your troops. And I said to him, I need to learn more about what these are. I had a pretty good idea what they'd probably be about. I need to learn more about what this, this is. And so let's schedule another day when you can come in and we can spend an hour in my office talking through this. Uh, but, um, you're always welcome in my unit. You're not going to have an office in my unit. Uh, that this is an operation squadron and I want, the troops in my unit to feel regardless of their political background, the race and anything else. I want them to feel like they have a chaplain in you that they can come to for confidential reporting, uh, purposes. Uh, there, there, there's something there in the military. I don't know if it, it's like this in the other federal agencies, but they're a confidential reporting source, meaning you can go to a chaplain and, and, and confidentially share some of your concerns, problems, etc., moans, gripes, complaints, so, so on and so forth, or issues you're facing in life. And they will keep it private and confidential between the two of you. And, and they're not obligated to share with the JAG or the attorney or the base commander or your unit commander. That's kind of between you and the chaplain. And I said, I need you available to them for that purpose. That's one of your primary roles. And if you start to politicize and... Um, segregate this unit uh, for any num in, in, in any number of ways, I'm afraid that, you know, you're going to, you're going to lose that confidence from some of the people in my unit. And he told me this, he said, I've heard about commanders like you, but I've never met one. Uh, and I took umbrage at that because that was, uh, in, in, this guy has a smile on his face. He's friendly, uh, but he was perturbed that I wouldn't let him have his way. And I'm fairly confident he went and shared that with the base commander. So I did sit down with him uh, and have this discussion. Uh, asked him what his race in America trainings were all about. He's, he says, well, I'm, I'm here to help people figure out how to solve systemic racism in the United States. I said, okay, tell me what you mean by that. And he hemmed and hawed and didn't answer the question. So I pressed him again and I just said, no, I want to understand what you think systemic racism means. What does that look like? And I kid you not, this is his literal answer. Basically, whites are racist. That was a direct quote. And I said, that's not acceptable. It's not true. I said, it's, uh, it's unwelcome in my uh, op squadron. It's a false worldview. It's a political worldview. And uh, you're not welcome to give that training to the troops. Well, I became the object of scrutiny at that base from that moment forward. I called the commander of the Space Force, General J. Raymond. I shared with him, uh, we've got a terrible politics problem at this base. We've got 
these things going on? He said, yeah, that's a really big problem. Uh, He agreed with me. And uh, a few weeks later, President Trump issued an executive order. September 22nd, 2020, there was an executive order that banned the use of critical race theory uh, trainings and vocabulary in, in the military workplace and in all federal agencies. And I breathed a big sigh of relief and so did a bunch of people at my base because we thought, phew, some of this will go away. Not at my base. You know, my base commander kept it up. He just drove it kind of to the underground and had, you know, black-only meetings at his on-base house uh, so that he could make sure that uh, he had black-only parties and social gatherings at his house and he had white-only meetings at his uh, at the base headquarters. And he would ask them questions while holding up pictures of the Trump administration, for example, what's wrong with this picture? And the white employees, of course, were afraid to answer. And he'd say, well, they're all white. That's what the problem is. It's a big problem in this country. This is this is a radical political activist. I share those details with the senior leaders of the military, and they refuse to take action. This is all in the lead up to the presidential election in 2020, by the way. Um, th- this is the kind of behavior that is unethical at least and usually especially in the way it was gone about on my base illegal for a, for a military commander in uniform to be acting in the way that the guys at my base were and um, for fear we elected we being senior leaders not me to um, turn a blind eye hoping it would just solve itself and go away and it doesn't go away it just ramps up and so I wrote that book because there's nothing like the fear of embarrassment to get the military uh, off its rear and, and moving. And uh, that's the sad reality. But uh, you got to solve these problems somehow. And if, if a lieutenant colonel, you know, I was too below the zone. I promoted two years early. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a good record. Among the best, in fact. And if I can't solve the problems by talking to members of the Joint Chiefs, then how is a young, truly oppressed airman or guardian in our air force or space force supposed to solve these problems they don't solve the problems and so they need people standing in the past speaking up trying to solve the problems so they can get back to focusing on the mission and not be politicized all day long and um you know i tried to solve it couldn't solve it using uh, my chain of command in fact in case you it sounds like you've got some listeners that are uh, military veterans um one of the questions that you may have wondered is, well, how come you didn't file a formal IG complaint? I did. You know, I filed a written formal inspector general's complaint. I, I didn't do, I didn't just go write a book. I, I tried to exhaust the, the legal process available to me to hold political activists accountable. And um, it all failed, you know. So when that fails, uh, then what do you do? Well, I wrote a book and I knew that that would cost me something and it did. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people waking up to these problems. Um, how about that for avoiding your question? You asked uh, about uh, my my school experience, my my degrees, and uh, <laughs> it's it's all relevant though. I mean, yeah, all it of this, is. It so, all it all comes together. I don't think we're hurting anything for for giving yeah. as much background as there is. I'm I'm also curious, but, having yeah, having yeah. shared that information with us. Um, many people allege that Obama gutted the people that had principle from the senior ranks, the flag officer types, the general officers. And and removed them from their ability, um, you know, had them retire early or failed to promote, and then that's how we ended up with a mushy, soft, impressionable Pentagon and and, and the folks that you were bringing complaints to that did nothing about it. Is that was that your experience? Is that something you could even see at that time? 
Yeah. Well, that's part of it. It's not the explanation. All of, there's there's nuance to all of this, but uh, for someone to allege that there was a purge of conservative patriots, uh, people who weren't properly politically aligned during the Obama years, is true enough. But uh, it gets criticism from those who don't see it that way because purge is a really strong word, and uh, that implies a certain kind of forceful expulsion of people uh, who are in leadership. And so maybe it's. You know, probably the best way to view it is that there was a deliberate political and cultural reshaping under the Obama administration, and it did see a lot of uh, people with your values f quickly finding their way uh, into the civilian world and out of the military. Uh, these are senior military leaders. There are probably hundreds of them. Uh, a part of that, though, is people choosing to leave the service because uh, of their own um, uh personal views, I think. Uh, but th there was a deliberate effort. I mean, a guy shows up saying, uh, we're going to fundamentally transform America. Um, in case it was lost on you at the time, you know, it's clear now you don't fundamentally transform anything that you love and think is beautiful or wonderful or praiseworthy. And this country, um, for it to be fundamentally transformed, uh, we see all the more clearly now what some of these folks have in mind. And, um, you know, but Obama, t to your point, he did nothing good for race relations in the military or in this country. Uh, in fact, uh, things got a bit worse. But, you know, that was all rather transparent to me in uniform. I just didn't, again, I, I didn't, I was busy flying airplanes at that time. Um, and you enjoy your job and you focus on the mission. And while there was a, um, there was a commission that was established in the Pentagon, I think it was in 2011, the Military Leadership and Diversity Commission. That was under the Obama administration. And the effort in, uh, that was transparent to anyone in the military, unless you were directly involved in the commission, in the Pentagon, working on this issue, was uh, going through regulations and policy and changing definitions and terms and uh, helping shape the uh, diversity and inclusion agenda, uh, defining terms like inclusion, equity. And, of course, it took years thereafter to see some of those definitions and some of that changed policy to be implemented in the form of trainings in the military workplace. And I saw that really get underway in full under the Trump administration. You know, it's not his doing. It's just the fruits of previous administrations' works. Uh, and when, to his credit, when he became aware that we were being fractured because of some of those trainings... That's when he issued an executive order trying to put a stop to it. But, you know, he was on his way out the door at that point. It was September of 2020. And that was one year before you were removed uh, permanently from well, the Space Force, yeah? Well, so let me share this detail as well. Mm. At the risk of... Now, so pay attention if you're starting to fall asleep out there. There's some important stuff here. <laughs> they're, 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 they're running wild uh, yeah. in the chat right now. Nobody okay. likes communism. Nobody much cares for a weak GOP or seeing yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that our country is being eroded at this rate. Okay, listen to this. So Trump issues an executive order in September of 2020. This timeline's amazing. Most men and women in uniform who are in leadership take an executive order from the commander-in-chief pretty seriously. Not my base commander. He was afraid and careful, and so he pursued his agenda in a much more sleuth kind of fashion, but it persisted. So I penned a formal written inspector general's complaint that I sent to 
senior Space Force leaders in November of 2020. It was two weeks after the election, the election nights. And unfortunately for me, that was the timing of a written complaint about uh, illegal race discrimination and so forth going on at my base. The three-star general who fielded that complaint, um, he sat on it in November. I had 24 witnesses listed on my complaint. They're, they're not my buddies. These are people in senior leadership positions around the base. Some were civilian, government contractors, military uniform wearers. I mean, I wanted to get people both who probably saw this as a tremendous problem like I did and who had participated in some of these trains and others who, like the chaplain, were per- the purveyors of the new left radical left agenda. They were witnesses on this complaint. I said, go interview these people. See what's happening at this base. Look into it. The Space Force leadership sat on that in November and December and January. Didn't didn't interview a single person because they wanted to see what the political writing was going to be. January 6th happened. And on January 7th, I got a written response at my base to my complaint, dismissing my complaint. And that's when I pressed forward with the book and published it in May of 2021. So literally, it was a several-month window between the time when my IG complaint was utterly dismissed. Not not a thank you, not a phone call from the senior leaders who I'd known very well. They know me and my wife and kids by name. They didn't say, hey, thanks for bringing this up. We're going to try and work this very carefully because it's a sensitive time. Nothing. It was, hey, your complaint, your IG complaint uh, has been received and noted and basically dismissed. And so I, I pressed forward and I published the book in May, which, to be very clear, was not meant to be a political screed. I, I tried my best to comply with my legal obligations to not publicly criticize my chain of command or the commander in chief, who was Joe Biden at that time. In fact, I don't criticize Lloyd Austin in that book. I say, Lloyd Austin says he wants to rid the ranks of extremists. Here, let me help you do that uh, by help help you. I'm going to identify some extremist behavior for you in this book. If you're interested, let me know because I got all their identities here. But, um, you know, we've got radical extremists running around. And if you're interested in purging them from the military, I'll tell you who they are. Um, I didn't criticize anyone uh, in my chain of command, and I did not play the part of a political activist. I tried to be rather apolitical and instead identify the Marxist roots of the current social justice activism and critical race theory vocabulary and whatnot. It's very traceable. And the next week I was fired from my command. This is the wild part. On the phone, the three-star general who had earlier dismissed my inspector general complaint, uh, they fired me as quickly as they found out I had a book out, whether or not they could get their hands on it that quickly. He said, I'm going to have to relieve you of your command for one, being politically partisan while acting in an official capacity. That's totally false. And two, for publicly criticizing your chain of command. Totally false. Never did either of those things. And I was uh, I was fired and quarantined on the base because we were really into quarantining people at that time in, in American life. Uh, for COVID or if you're a terrible aggressor like I was who's taking on the, the woke left. So I was separated from troops on my base. They were told not to talk to me. I didn't know that until months later. 
I had my access to the restricted area where I worked taken from me. Uh, My badge credentials were taken, even though I didn't know that and I wasn't told that. I was told by a troop who leaked that information to me that that I had that access taken. And um, the base commander activist, who frankly should have been fired and uh, forced into retirement, was promoted to his first star. Um, And so that's when you know that you've got a heinous problem on your hands. And the people at the very top who agree with me that this is a problem acted out of fear and fired me and promoted the activist and claimed that I was the activist. I mean, talk about a loss of all accountability. Well, I get to talk a little bit about, you know, when I join a podcast with you, and thanks for letting me um, be so long-winded. You know, I get to, I get to talk about the story when I'm on a podcast with you. Uh, in the meantime, I've been speaking around the country just about Marxism. Uh, I spend three minutes on my story, tell people to go get my book and learn about it. And then I, and then I say, Hey, let's talk about some of the issues we're confronting because they're not going away despite people's efforts. They're, they're ramping up. We have people waking up and more and more people becoming alive and awake and loving their country. And we've got more people hating this country. And so the, the divide continues, you know, it's a really sad um, state we find ourselves in. It is. I just saw Jigsaw Massacre, who's one of our regulars in the chat, say, is it too early to start drinking? I think people uh, hear, our, <laughs> hear a lot of our uh, podcasts, and, and it's it's constantly bringing a, a, an important light on what's out there. But if you're not armed with this information, then you're going to be uh, you're going to be overrun by it, I believe. You're, oh, yeah. You're, you're clearly an analytical and a, a sober, you know, thinker. When you're when you're writing this book, when you're looking down the barrel of an IG that has uh, dismissed your complaint, and I had a, a similar experience. I, I wrote an IG mm-hmm. complaint. I, I went to the office of the uh, general counsel with the FBI. I said, here's some problems. You know that you're targeted. Um, I think that there's no question about that. What Did you see the end that uh, that you experienced coming, uh, even though it's always you know surprising when it happens? Did you, did you see that and go like, all right, well, this is, this is pending. I'm, conversations with the wife, this sort of thing uh, happening oh, in your house? Yeah. Well, so the the four months that I spent writing this book, um, now I want to back up just a few months. You mentioned being targeted, okay? So I'm penning this written Inspector General's complaint about the political activism on this base, and I'm and and our house is broken into on the base. I, I live that. on the base, okay? The same chaplain I mentioned. Now, I don't know if anyone, by the way, got into my house, but the window was clearly pushed in. Uh, the, the metal frame around the window was pushed in. The furniture was knocked over. Uh, I got home with my wife and kids on a Saturday evening to a, a smashed-in window and uh, a knocked-over dresser that was next to that window. Uh, you know, it's on the ground level. It's I live on the commander's circle. Yeah, maybe you can explain to people just how unusual and bizarre that is, especially on a base, because there's some people that don't have that experience. Yeah, especially on, yeah, I can't speak to the Army bases. I don't want to live on an Army base. But I can (laughs) speak to, uh, you know, Air Force. I've lived on a few Air Force bases. Um, It's the kind of place where you don't lock your cars in your house, and everyone's kids run around freely, and everyone gets along. Um. And uh, I lived in a cul-de-sac on my base with the other base, the, the commanders on the base. You know, there were uh, there were lieutenant colonels and colonels living in that circle and some senior enlisted leaders. And um, 
it was probably nine o'clock uh, p.m. when I get home, and I call the police. I tell my wife and kids, the sleeping kids, I said, "Stay in the car. I'm going to run through the house real quick." It was fine. Didn't look like anyone had been in, although clearly there was an attempt at entry. I'm guessing the smash of the furniture caused them to run off, you know, but um, I, I call the police. They come to the to the house and they start filing their police report and they write in the police report that the wind blew over the furniture in the house and, the, uh, and, and knocked in the window. I said, that is not true and it's not acceptable and that won't go in the police report. And they said, well, that's our assessment. I said, did the wind dent in the metal? Uh, frame and I said it looks like clearly it was pushed in I mean th this is bent I've got pictures in fact and they said well you know it's it's our it was a really windy day it's uh, our sense that this is probably uh, just the wind I said how many other windows on the base were blown in today and they said none I said and and how long have you worked here in the last few years how many windows have been blown in with, uh, by the wind oh, none I said, so, but you think it was the wind. I said, okay, then you write that you think it was the wind. That's fine. I want to see you write in this police report that I disagree with your assessment and I think someone attempted entry into my house. And, uh, you know, I haven't told that publicly very often, but uh, what I need to do is call the base and request a copy of the police report uh, and see if it still exists. One, I watched him write this in the police report that I disagreed with their assessment that I insisted someone attempted entry. And here's why I insisted on that. In addition to the, the appearance of things, uh, that week prior, I have a locked operations unit on my base. Had, you have to type in a code to get into the building. And peop, so people on the base, if they're not a part of my unit, they, they can't access my building. And um, well after duty hours, the week leading up to this, attempted break-in at my house. Well after duty hours, twice in one week, I found that same chaplain snooping around my building. And it was the week that I was writing my complaint. And there were only a few people in my unit who were aware that I was actively penning a, a written complaint against the base commander and the chaplain and some... And here he is. You know, it's it's well... I mean, when I say well after the duty day, if it's 4.30 and that's close of business in the military, chaplains are usually going home. Yeah. Chaplains are going home to their families, and he had a family, and he's uh, he. It's it's, I think six fifteen, six thirty p.m. It's dark, it's November, and uh, here he is wandering the halls. No one in my unit. I said, Chaplain, what are you doing? Did he have access to the building normally? Did he have the code key? Well, he did have access to the building now, and I I don't know that he had the the key to get into the building. So some somehow now it's possible I'm. I'm wrong. Uh, a lot of this was a whirlwind and surprising to me, and so I'd, I'd be guessing now, but uh, here's why I don't know, if that, if that sounds odd to you, because normally when he would come by, it was daytime, and it's easy to access our building in the daytime when the doors are open and people are working there, or people are letting you into the building. Sure. Um, and so the, the fact that I saw him in there, I thought, <clears throat> that's not unusual. The time of day was unusual, and no one was in the building. I said... What are you doing? Uh, what are you doing here? He says, "Oh, I'm just coming to check on the troops." And I said, "Well, they're all home." And he said, "Yeah, I just thought I'd see who's here." Well, that was one day when I encountered him. I was the only person in the building. And then a few days go by, <clears throat> and he knew very well that he's not going to encounter people in that particular building 
after duty hours. That's not where they spend time. They spend time on an ops floor because we had a 24-hour-a-day mission doing space-based missile warning. Well, a few days go by, and my uh, senior enlisted uh, leader in the squadron, uh, my superintendent, and my director of operations, uh, a major, they were in the building doing some planning well after hours. I wasn't there. And they said, we had a strange encounter with the chaplain in the building uh, last night. I said, really? That's the second time this week. He's coming around when he thinks no one's going to be in the building. And I had this complaint and paperwork that I was sorting through sitting on my desk in my office. This will sound funny. I booby-trapped my office. I said, you know what? I I told my DO (laughs) and I told my senior enlisted leaders, I said, do not come in my office after I leave for the day because I want to see if someone is in my office after I leave. I keep the door locked, but I'm not going to lock it. And I'm going to booby trap this place and they won't know, but I'm going to know if someone's in here. And, uh, and I did that and I said, everything just right. I'm kind of a neat guy. Um, I said everything exactly where I wanted it to see if people were coming in. And, uh, here's the, the boring part of the story is I don't think anyone came into my office after that point, (laughs) but you know, I, I, I was, I was aware enough, conscientious enough and concerned enough about some of what I was running into. I had a woman on the base following me around. See, we, there's too many stories, but I would take my unit out for PT. Uh, not a common thing in the Air Force. Maybe it is in the Army or the Marine Corps. But I, I said, you know what? We're going to do unit fitness, unit PT. Well, it was during COVID restrictions. So you weren't allowed to be in the same building with one another. And you were only allowed to breathe heavily and exercise if you had a mask on your face. And so I said, well, you know what? We're going to go outside to the football field. We're going to take our masks off. We're going to stand 25 feet apart. And I'm going to shout across the field. We're all going to do flutter kicks and push-ups. And we're going to run around the track. And we're going to stay so far away from each other. We might as well be out here by ourselves like individual selves. And I did this for a few weeks and there was this Jeep that kept showing up everywhere I went. And I thought someone's, someone's watching what I'm doing. I've already had this encounter with the chaplains. I've uh, called, I've talked to my chain of command about uh, my concerns about the politics on this base. It was turning into a communist compound Everyone is afraid to be seen with one another on the base and outside. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Uh, and I, I, I doubt many bases were quite as hyped up on politics as my base was. It was just, it was the luck of the draw, if you will. And so one day, I, 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 I in fact, I leave the football field and, and I cross the track and I walk straight to this Jeep out in the parking lot. And I, and this woman looks surprised that I'm coming to find her. I, the base commander had been making some announcements on his weekly, um, this is the political activist, by the way, on his weekly town hall that he was doing on Facebook. And he was saying, hey, if you're out on the track running during my COVID restrictions, you need to stop. That's against my base policies. You know, no fitness. I don't care if you're out there by yourselves. Well, so I just kept doing it because I thought that's absurd. We're not even close to each other. So I kept doing it. Well, I went up to this woman in the Jeep and I confronted her and I was respectful, but I said, hey, who are you? And why do you have interest in what I'm doing out here? And she admitted that she had been told by the base commander to come spy on my unit. I mean, this is the kind of stuff. Where I mean, was, was she a, out of? She worked, she worked at the gym. She was a civilian. Oh. She's just a normal civilian white woman driving her personal vehicle, following me around. And it's like, 
you're getting paid to leave your job and come and watch what I'm doing so you can report back to the base commander? And, and I just thought, this is so absurd, what's going on. So I uh, I told my boss about it, said, hey, I met this woman who's spying on us. She just admitted she's been put up to spying on me. This is out of control, you know. And uh, it was about the same time I was writing this written complaint. Well, after all of that stuff and not seeing any kind of accountability, I thought there's no stopping this agenda. And I see it for what it is. And so many around me don't yet, but they will. They'll see it soon enough, a year from now, five years from now. They'll all look back and say, man, I saw this coming. Why didn't I say anything? Why didn't I do anything? Right? Because this is where it goes. So I wrote that com complaint and then I wrote a book. Um, and fortunately, that book, uh, you know, it's it's been a powerful educational tool. And a lot of people, I still, I still get messages. This week, I've gotten a couple messages from active duty members saying, hey, I just discovered your book. It's been two years. Uh, and I read it and I, and my eyes were opened and I think, man, this explains so clearly what I've been seeing for the past couple of years and couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I'll tell you what that does, Kyle, when someone is, is aware of what is going on, they all of a sudden have this elevated courage to speak up because they know a little bit more about how to articulate the problems they're facing and to, and say, you know, I am right and I'm being trampled and bullied. And so I can take some courage and I can speak up and say, hey, what I'm hearing is wrong, what I'm seeing is wrong, and I hope we all join me in speaking up against this because now I know enough to be courageous enough. I'm not going to second-guess my decision to be courageous. And and I think the more you educate people, the more I can help educate people, the more courage you're going to see. It'll be contagious. There's uh, at least three people, maybe more, that have uh, mentioned uh, the same word in hearing what you're talking about. They've They've praised your grace in handling this sort of thing in the way that you're actually discussing it, which I think is it, like I said, it, you, you seem to be one of those kind of guys that can take on a lot of burdens and, and handle it gracefully. And then, you know, articulate it in a way, engage in the, in the fight without getting combative. And that's the only way that anyone's going to really hear something that might not quite align with them. They'll at least hear it. And you've planted that seed. You've given them that power. I tend to engage with people on Twitter in the same way. I, I you know, nobody's going to get my goat on Twitter. I don't think they're real. And, but I will go out there and challenge a lot of the things that people are saying that are clearly ridiculous. And, and then you get called a Nazi and you get called a racist and a homophobic and all these things that are not true. And, uh, you, you know, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I imagine it doesn't hurt your feelings. You look like you've got some pretty thick skin for this. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but, but you, you got to get to a point, but it does wear more. It's like, don't, don't let people, I was just watching Matt Walsh's what is a woman. Yep. He's sitting there hearing absurd things come out of these doctors mouths and you can tell the look on his face. He's just like. You know what? Like, I'm just going to listen. I think you're crazy and I'm not going to get aggressive with you. And then ask them some really simple, tough questions. You know, what is a woman? Uh, it's amazing how if you're willing to grow some thick skin, you know, you can accomplish a lot <laughs> in the face of the bullies. It's true. It's true. And also there's something to be said. Uh, I, I had an interesting experience when they when they took my badge, my gun credentials. I'm sure it was a similar kind of um feeling for you you know you've got the adrenaline dump and all the things that are it's it's enraging because it feels like you're being betrayed oh, yeah. by people that you should otherwise be able to respect and uh, when i walked out my boss said something to me that i'll never forget he said uh he said you handled that like a gentleman and i only had and i didn't program this response i didn't have any choice but he just said uh he said that to me and i looked at him and i said well that's really easy these men are beneath me mm. and and i've pitied them i really did because in so in so many ways 
I don't think any of those guys that, that were serving above you that were That's doing right. these things, they didn't start out this way and they didn't start out to be that way, but they're not men of strong, you know, of moral courage and they were easily bent to illegal, immoral, or unethical purpose. And when they do that, it there's nothing sadder. That that's that is what tragedy looks like in literature. Somebody who had potential and they gave into a flaw, and their flaw is you know moral weakness or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, your book was that's right. Yeah, your book was received very well uh, publicly, but obviously not well by your command. Uh, what was the experience like as they started stripping this stuff off? You mentioned that your troops weren't allowed to talk to you. That had to be kind of isolating as well. Maybe kind of talk about how that felt and what kind of conversations you were having at home about it, because I imagine that was interesting. Well, as I mentioned, I was living on the base. And um, so when I was fired, it was May 14th. Um, This is an important detail. It was a Friday, uh, May 14th, 2021. And the next morning, on Saturday morning, I woke up to headlines in the national news that I had been fired. Uh, I didn't do that. Space Force did that. And uh, there was a military.com article um, that clearly had been worked for a few days with maybe Space Force Public Affairs and military.com. And uh, there was it was enough substance in there and enough planned talking points from military leaders that I thought, okay, they've been planning to fire me for a few days. They planned a public release to kind of cover their necks. And so I get fired. The next morning I wake up, see these headlines. I read the articles and they say we had to relieve our commander. They mention me by name. It's not we had to relieve one of our commanders. It's we relieved Lieutenant Colonel Matt Lohmeyer of his command because we lost our trust and confidence in his ability to lead. Well, that's total BS. They didn't lose their trust and confidence in my ability to lead. They're trying to cover their necks because they fired me and they're not sure where this is all going to go. And so they have to use the language that comes right out of the UCMJ. And it's like, well, how and why do you fire someone? Well, if you lose your trust and confidence in their ability to lead, you can fire them. Well, that's an easy out. So we'll say that. And there's no and, metrics um, to measure that, by the way. That's just a, that's somebody's gut instinct or that's somebody's CYA. Well, yeah, you know, and, and of course, there are clearly some illegal things like what my base commander was doing, but they weren't willing to fire him and say they lost the trust and confidence in him. And um, the day I was I was fired. You know, by the way, it's all a little bit off putting to me to constantly tell my story because it's like me, me, me. I'm talking about me. But it is a necessary, you know, it's, I have to understand and appreciate that people want to hear a story and then, and that's one way of helping educate. So you tell this story and I'm going to live with this for some while. That's what I get for doing what I did. But, um, so I mentioned two reasons for which I was fired that day on the phone. This three-star general Stephen Whiting who's still in the space force. He said, I'm relieving you of your command for, uh, political for being politically partisan while acting in an official capacity and for publicly criticizing your chain of command. And get this, right after he said that, I asked him to repeat that because I wanted to make sure I got the words exactly right. And he said those things again. And then he said this, and now I'm opening an inspector general's investigation to determine if you have in fact 
acted in a politically partisan manner while acting in an official capacity, and if you've publicly criticized your chain of command. And I hadn't done either of those things. And and so they, they took the action and released a national press release and then opened an investigation to see what they could find. And I'll tell you what they found. They came up with big fat goose eggs because I did everything by the book. Of course. I was really careful. I had caveats in the front of my book, the middle of my book, the end of my book saying these are my views, not the views of the Defense Department. Uh, that I have a legal obligation to not publicly criticize my chain of command. They found all that stuff and said, holy crap, this guy didn't do anything that we can punish him for. And so now we're the fools. That's right. Um, but, and, and you even have that so on your Twitter handle months. right now. Like your Twitter bio, even still to this day, says that thing, even though you're no longer, yeah. you're not you're not beholden yeah. to those rules. Well, I, I just, I kind of got a kick out of all of this because... My attorney at the time, I started getting invites to go on with Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, of course, so all, all the big conservative media outlets were wanting for me to tell them about what's going on, why I was fired. And uh, I did pretty good. Almost always, I had to build a habit pattern, remembering to start my interviews by saying, let me say up front that uh, these views don't represent the views of the Department of Defense and the Air Force, Space Force, and so forth. These are my personal views. And then to never criticize my chain of command. And the three months that followed, while I was under investigation, so-called pretended investigation, they watched very carefully to see if I would come out as a political animal, come out swinging and talk about how terrible they all were. And I didn't. I praised my military chain of command, my leaders. I said, hey, I'm in uniform. I don't criticize these guys. They're in a tough job. But we've got to eliminate politics from the military workplace. We've got critical race theory that's dividing the military. And they watched and watched. And never was I charged with anything. Never was I found guilty of anything. And um, they tried to reassimilate me back into the workplace because they knew that I'd never be able to command or lead again. They, they already said publicly they'd lost their trust and confidence in my ability to lead people. We don't, you just wrecked and derailed my, my leadership path, uh, which they had been planning. So they wanted to just bury me in the Pentagon or in, uh, the, the, at the time, the Space Force headquarters in Colorado Springs. They said, hey, let's... Let's just find you another job, move you off that base, and bury you in a cubicle somewhere. And so I was talking with members of Congress. They had, um, you know, Congress occasionally approves a program called TERRA, the Early Retirement something. I need to learn what that stands for. And uh, Senator Tom Cotton in Arkansas and others, Jim Inhofe and others, they wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Air Force, urging, was the, I think the word that they used, him to approve the early retirement package for me because I had served over 15 years and met the early retirement qualification timeline standard, at least. And uh, that was denied because the Secretary of the Air Force said, I've counseled with my legal team and I don't think it's in my authority to approve such a thing. <laughs> Even though the, Congre the Congress who approved such a thing in the form of the early retirement program uh, was urging him to approve it. And so... I separated voluntarily, I want to make that clear, of, of my own volition in September of 2021, but I, I had an active duty service commit, so I had to request to be separated. Um, and I had, and the reason I did that is because I had a decision to make. You stay in for the next couple of years and finish serving out your active duty service commitment in a cubicle somewhere and constantly living under the burden of knowing that you're not allowed to publicly criticize your chain of command or... You separate and speak around the country at all these conferences that are inviting you to speak and start to educate the, the country about what's happening in the military. And that's the far better thing to do. And so I voluntarily separated and I've been speaking out ever since. I speak in conferences and um, tell stories and um, 
people mistake me for a motivational speaker when I stand up for the first 10 seconds and then they realize I'm actually a demotivational speaker. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, that we're all somewhat masochistic. Hey, can, can we pay you a couple dollars to come and, and tell us how terrible things are in this country? Yeah, I'll be happy to come join you and tell you about come you know, how day. we're wrecking ourselves. And, uh, but, but the point of all of it is that you have to learn what the problems are if you're going to solve the problems. That's the bottom line. And so there's a fine balance between tearing down and balancing that with, with exposing problems with the attempt to rebuild. And I'll tell you, even as someone who wants to do that right, it's easy to lose track of that pretty quickly. And it's so easy to tear down and criticize because everything we're doing deserves criticism and scrutiny. Uh, and, um, so I'm working on a film right now that I hope is going to weave the needle very carefully and it's publicly expose the problems of our military and build the best recruiting video the defense department's ever seen in the past quarter century that really gets your patriotic conservative. Now I shouldn't put it that way, but that's who I tend to talk to most your patriotic Americans who genuinely love their country, regardless of their political background. Mm -hmm who want to believe in the greatness of the American ideal to recognize there are still great men and women in uniform. They're trying their best to recover this thing. There are veterans who are on our side who are trying to eliminate politics from the military. We're exposing the problems and I've always wanted to serve and I can go serve and try and help solve this, you know, right the ship because the last thing you want is for all the decent patriot, patriotic Americans in this country to never want to be in the military. And our DOD is doing a fine job discouraging them from serving right now. They are indeed. Um, I know that my friend Dan Bongino likes to say that he's very long on America. I hold the same beliefs, <laughs> although I think that we're probably um, I had it articulated the other day in a way that I'd never heard a friend of mine who served both in the Navy and the Marine Corps and also in the FBI and the NSA told me that he believes that we are watching like a storm front coming in um, a uh, I'm sorry about that, that a, a storm front is, is on its way in to this country and pushing and when you have a stagnant air mass like we see with this this inherent marxist sort of rot that has been sitting here and the mass comes in you end up with tumultuous weather um, and that can take a period of time but when that flows out you end up with the cool crisp air and uh the, you know the ozone and all the mm -hmm. all the kind of good things that we associate with the day after the storm when you wake up and that may be pending do you have a sense that there is mm -hmm maybe some difficult times coming that we are going to see some more difficulty and a, and a good outcome? Or do you, you know, you're out there doing demotivational speaking. Is it all negative mm -hmm. or is there any positive to walk away with it? Cause I want to be respectful of that uh, 90 yeah. minutes we had. Well, it depends on the crowd. Sometimes I'm, uh, I had one person tell me in Tulsa a week and a half ago that uh, he didn't like my fatalist approach. <laughs> and uh, I said, sorry, you know, I got to speak it how it is. Um, so, <clears throat> Uh, we're we're in for some tougher times ahead because some of the fruits that are generated with the kind of idiocy that we've seen for the past couple of years, you can't undo in a day. Mm -hmm. So the reality is that even if we cleaned up our act completely today, there are some consequences for how we behaved for the last couple of years. And so we have to see at least, at very least, some of that's going to play out. That, that will play out economically. It plays out socially and politically. Uh, you know, you elect officials into office, of, of course, uh, you can impeach them. That's a process. Even if we decide today to wise up and do some things we should be doing, uh, these things require time. Now, here, here's one example of what I mean. When you disincentivize the American people to the point where your, your recruiting numbers are suffering is the way they are with our military at the, at the present moment. 
you don't recover that by straightening up your act today. Although you do need to straighten up your act today. And then you wait and you keep persistently doing the right things and you buy and buy gain the trust of the American people so that they're they're willing to recommend if they're a veteran themselves to their their niece and nephew or their grandchild that, yeah, I, I think the military is a noble institution that I trust and love still. And you should go serve there like your dad and your granddad did. Uh, it's going to take some convincing to get some of our veterans to that point. Um, and so you can make some needed changes today to fix recruiting that takes a season. And here's the other problem. Retention doesn't normally make it into the, uh, into the news headlines cycle, but uh, we always talk recruiting numbers because at a glance, you can see what our recruitment looks like. What you can't know is what's in the mind and heart of the man or woman who's been in for 20 years at this point, who had originally planned on staying in another five or 10, but who's now determined to get out this fall or next spring. And I hear from them all the time saying, I'm done. I'm done. I'm getting out. They're turning down promotion opportunities to colonel. They're turning down command opportunities. I just heard a startling statistic. Hang your head on this one. Uh, I, I can't. I haven't verified this, but it came from a good source. In the army, in the medical profession, you have about 700 lieutenant colonels who are command eligible and for eligible for promotion to colonel. There are roughly 70 command spots that people need to apply to compete for right now. And we have around 30 of that 700 lieutenant colonels who have volunteered to compete for the 70 command spots. Think of that, 700 lieutenant colonels. And I think it was just under 30. It was like 27 of them had volunteered to throw their name in the hat to stay in, compete for promotion to colonel, and get a command slot. That's how much they're hating their experience right now in the medical world. Uh, that, that's because we've had met a spirit of medical tyranny. Uh, both in and outside of the military and in, and they're like, you know, this is not why I'm a doctor. It's not to be forced and bullied into how to treat my patients. It's to actually give people the best treatment that I believe will help them. And instead, I'm being put in an unethical, immoral, illegal position where I'm bullied into doing something for patients that I don't even believe in. And so when you've got that many doctors not willing to stick in, what what is the army going to have to do? I'll tell you what it's going to do. It's probably going to have to do with its medical profession the same thing it did with its aviators and it tells them we know you want to retire we know you want to separate but we're forcing you to stay in it just did that to th it told 300 army aviators that they weren't going to be allowed to get out um so we're, we're seeing that those are the fruits of some of our bad decisions you don't undo that in a day and you don't undo it in a year it takes years now here's another analogy for you i like the the weather analogy it's apt and um maybe this one's a little bit more ominous, but <clears throat> you know, you think of a, tr a train with many cars that are on a, it's on a track. And if the front car derails and it's, and there's a, there's a chain reaction in process or in progress, a lot of the cars down the way don't know that the train wreck has even begun until it's their time to jump the rails. Mm -hmm. And I wonder at the moment if, uh, some of the decisions we've made is like we've incurred a train wreck. And yet, for the most part, society is happily seated on the train that's already begun its collision. I mean, it's it's already had a collision of fate, if you will. And um, as we continue to see the terrible consequences, the fruit, the outcome of these bad decisions, their policy decisions, uh, societal 
cultural impulse, a spiritual impulse. Um, people keep waking up as they, they, they sense the train is rumbling and they're saying, what's going on and how did we get here and when did this happen? And they don't know that the train started crashing yesterday. And, you know, by and by, their their car, too, is, is headed for a really tough spot. And uh, so how do you help position people properly to survive what's coming so that we can... Uh, that's that's the fatalistic way of putting it, but I'm speaking in metaphorical terms. How do you how do you position people to ride out the storm, the crashes, as it were, so that when you've got a group of people who make it through to the other side, they can properly reboot and rebuild, and get the right kind of government in place, get the right kind of society structured. Um, that is the ultimate bad. You know, that's the, the 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 worst way of looking at this is that there's a train wreck that's unstoppable. And um, so if that's possible, and I think it's possible, whether or not it's reality, if that's possible, then then your listener needs to start thinking about that. Like, hey, how many train cars back am I and where do I see my, do I live in the city? And am I a part of society that's going to collapse first? And if so, how do I position myself to feed my wife and kids and family and hopefully, hopefully not have to get involved in violence? And um and see myself and my community and my family and, and others that I love through this storm that's in the making uh, so that I can come out the, the back end and be a part of the strong members of society who, who, who do the right things on the back end of this. Um, so that's, that's a more fatalistic uh, analogy than the storm probably. But yeah, the conditions are bad right now and people recognize this. And um, we need good leaders elected in. And and that starts at the local level, but it, it'll also, of course, be a big issue in 2024 at the presidential election. And whoever becomes the next president, I hope it's, uh, uh, frankly, someone that's not Joe Biden, uh, is going to have a lot of mess that they inherit, no matter how strong a leader they are. So you get George Washington in that office, and he's going to have a shitstorm to clean up in the aftermath of this administration. Uh, that's just reality. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, a lot of people are seeing it. Even his numbers are low. And yet, as my friend George likes to tell me, uh, they don't appear concerned. They don't appear worried that he has such bad ratings, that they're doing such a terrible job. And even even people like I've got liberal brothers that are you know pretty leftist at this point, And, you know, they make a good living and they're looking around going, you know, my uh, my investments are trash. <laughs> I, I can't afford a house. You know, right. 30 something, 35 year old lawyer who makes, you know, uh, a $200,000 a year can't go out and buy a place where he's living. That's not a good situation to be in. And they're going, I kind of hope a Republican ends up in office. Um, and yet you don't see the Democrat party concerned at all. That does that make you pause at all and think that there's something that's not on the level coming down the way? Yeah, it is cause for concern. You know, I've liked Robert Kennedy too. He's been a champion the past couple of years, although just the label Democrat anymore these days, I'm like, I don't want Democrats anywhere near my country. Right. right. But it's like, I have to admire the guy's tenacity for the past couple of years. And so it's maybe there's some genius in what he's doing. Um, but uh, I don't know if they'll give him a fair shot in the primaries, to be honest. Right. Yeah. They're going to shut down stifle debate. Um, who was it? It was uh, Jim Comey that just came out and said, you know, like it can't be anyone other than Joe Biden. What sane person says that after what we've witnessed for the past couple of years? I mean, no one, and I don't care what their politics are, should like what they're seeing happening in this, like economically at least, and with the border, and with human and drug trafficking, if they're paying any attention at all. The fact is a lot of these people don't pay attention to that stuff, and that's why they're not concerned. But someone like Jim Comey should know better. 
And so it's about keeping a puppet in the regime and pursuing a particular agenda. Let me say this. This is tangential. There is a broader agenda afoot that, you know, you, you hear about organizations and people like the WEF and Klaus Schwab uh, and UNESCO and United Nations and the 2030 agenda and a great reset. And th that agenda, which is very real, requires the obsolescence of the United States of America as the global hegemon. It requires the diminution of the United States economy and the U.S. military might. And in international relations speak, the way you measure the power or strength of any country or, or great power in the world stage is their economic strength and their military might. I mean, those two factors uh, alone uh, carry so much weight in the international arena. And it, it just isn't a coincidence that both of those things are suffering greatly under the current administration and that there are those who are interested in keeping the current administration in place for another four years as a part of a plan to get somewhere over the next decade. You need to diminish the West. I've got some letters from Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in a book that's not cheap to get anymore these days because it's been out of print for decades. Uh, but but there are letters between Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, and some of their Western comrades in the late, in the mid and late 19th century, and they are all about trying to infiltrate the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House, the U.S. presidency, academia, in order to subvert and destroy the United States in the West by and by. They said it's going to take a serious uh, amount of lifting. It's going to take a lot of time. But if you can infiltrate those offices and you can have someone in positions of power who's willing to pursue our agenda, then we'll destroy the economy of the West. And uh, the last bastion, I think it was Friedrich Engels' letter. It's been a, over a year since I read it. Friedrich Engels said the last bastion of um, uh, something of the West and the he invokes some imagery. It was powerful, but he's like, it will come, it will come crashing down. Uh, the last bastion of the bourgeois empire or something like that will come crashing down and that will end capitalism forever. And of course that was the United States. It had to be torn down if you were to end the capitalist world order as it were, and the, uh, uh and, and, and the supremacy of the West and, and enforce a new global state, rather communist order, um, and, and state of affairs. And uh, all of that's part of the current agenda as well. It definitely appears to be that. And uh, it appears that uh, at least we might have gotten a little break in that 2020 movement that people started to see it. Um, you know, right. this this movement, this Marxism, you know, coming into this country is, hy is like hypoxia in that it's just very insidious. It's very hard to recognize it. Uh, there's a reason why pilots are put into an altitude chamber. I did the same thing as a flight crew guy. You sit in there and you watch your friends slowly get stupider and then they just start repeating the same thing over and over again and it doesn't make any sense to you because you've got the oxygen but uh they've been starved of it and i think a lot of people mm. are experiencing that exact that exact feeling where they don't even know that they are not making sense that they're you know just on a collision path with with their demise great analogy yeah i've, I've been through the same training and it's amazing what you don't perceive while you're hypoxic and then all of a sudden you get your air back and all the color reappears and you recognize that, geez, like I've been blind, I've been stupid, I've been slurring, I've been passing out and I didn't even know it. You looked down at the maze that you were drawing and you were just doing squiggles in a circle and you thought you were navigating it's, it because it made sense in your yeah. head and you just didn't have the ability to perceive it. 
Really amazing. Yeah, great analogy. Having uh, having seen a number of it, it's it's funny to watch on the outside, like I said. But uh, as, as you well know, like when that when that color vision pops back in, I've done it on a dive as well, where you're getting you know kind of strangled out, and you're you're running less and less on less air on a tank underwater, and then you 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 hit that that rescue breath, and all of a sudden things pop back in. And that we used to say it was visiting the wizard. That's what you had done. You'd gone down there and visited <laughs> the wizard. But it's really the opposite of what happens on the Oz trip, you know, because the color is where we're really living. The black and white, which was the reality for Dorothy. Um, that's that's the thing that they're pulling over everybody's eyes. That you know, that's Kansas right. is no real. Anyway, it kind of a fun little uh, experience, and and only certain people in the world get to experience that sort of thing. Uh, folks who have done that uh, that chamber ride, and and then people probably who it sounded like we just lost a plane yesterday over DC that had that same experience. Right. Probably uh, had a, a depressurization, but um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully our country is not depressurized that we can repressurize this thing and start. Uh, up in that partial pressure of oxygen, letting people start seeing what is true, and, and guys like you out there are doing that. Let people know, if you would, where they can follow you, if they want to book you as a speaker for their organization, if they want to be demotivated in such a way. Um, <laughs> tell them where they can come see your stuff. Yeah, so you mentioned my website, MatthewLohmeyer.com. Um, that's being redone at the moment. In fact, I haven't touched that for over 12 months, but at least currently there's a function on there where you can reach out to me and make a comment. It'll come directly to my personal email. And uh, people request me to speak through that website, MatthewLomire.com. You order signed copies of my book there as well. Amazon's probably the best place, cheapest place to get a copy of my book. Um, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, there's going to be some exciting uh, announcements in the uh, fall months and into the beginning of uh, presidential election season next year. Uh, one of the things we mentioned earlier is a movie I'm working on uh, that's uh, got tremendous support. Heritage Foundation is uh, supporting us and, par and partnering with us. And we've had some meetings with some congressmen recently, and I've got a, an exceptionally talented film crew who's working with me. And it's a documentary about my career, also my book, and it's an attempt to both educate people about the Marxist roots of what's happening at the moment, but also uh, hopefully incentivize people to serve this great country and to reestablish patriotism. And, uh, you know, frankly, it's, isn't it sick that patriotism has become like a bad word or something? Nationalism and patriotism, of course, they, those things can lead to an evil impulse, but it's not patriotism itself and nationalism itself. Those are necessary parts of any functioning nation state or society like you need people that love their country and uh, they darpa helped coin a term i think it was darpa uh for the military patriot extremist as if to demonize those who have such an such a strong love for their country that they're willing to do terrible or egregious things in its defense as if you don't want those very people serving in your united states military right um, but yeah, we need patriots in our military. We need patriots all over the country, regardless of their political bent. And we need to get to a place where people more and more recognize that, uh, the love of the country will keep this country alive. And, uh, the more we, uh, subversively re-educate people into thinking it was nothing lovely or praiseworthy in the first place. Uh, the more likely it is that this train wreck will continue. The storms will build and we'll become increasingly angry with one another and divided. And uh, we need to we need to stem that that course if we can. Very much appreciate you sharing the time with us, folks. If you want to follow Matt on Twitter, I just started doing that as well. His name and his Twitter handle are in the show notes. You can find his book. 
linked in the show notes. You can find his webpage linked in the show notes. All those things are available for you in case you can't spell Lohmeyer, but it is L-O-H-M-E-I-E-R. Uh, find that. Did I get that right? Yeah, you did. I was listening carefully. <laughs> I, I go on Seb Gorka sometimes and he misspells my name. It always makes me laugh because we've talked probably 20 times now. Uh, what, so, is, what does he do? Does he put an M at the end? You're one of the seraphim? Sometimes he does it with a with an F instead of a PH. Sometimes oh, he F. adds an E on the end of it and says Seraphine because he's, he's just, he's Seb Gorka. That's what he does. He's he's doing the thing. But uh, I, that, folks, if you want to find it, you can always find that in the show notes here. I will retweet some of the stuff. I'm now following your account. I found it last night and uh, I look forward to seeing some of the things you're putting out um, especially your individual thoughts. You're obviously a thinker, and I'm really appreciative for you being such a great patriot coming and talking to the audience today. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you liked what you heard, we do these on Mondays. Generally speaking, we will uh, do as long as the story takes, uh, especially guest allowing. And you can like, share, and subscribe these things. You can uh, punch those buttons on Rumble. We're always live at 9.30 Eastern or 8.30 in Texas, America on our Rumble channel, rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. I'll read a five-star view another day. We've had plenty of information here. Um, the demotivation, I think, still motivates me because it makes me know that there are people willing to come out and speak out, and they're willing to put their lives on the line, put their their futures on the line, their pensions on the line, their paychecks on the line for a thing that's really worth it, which is saving this country and pulling it back from the brink. So, uh, Matt, thanks for joining me today. I look forward to seeing more from you in the future. And if you ever have anything else you want to share with us, by all means, I'd love to love to do it again. Please come on back. Thanks, Kyle. All right, y'all. You've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. We'll see you again on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin. 